Jacob can come before Pharaoh and bless him because of the initiation, the invitation of Joseph. And the same is true for you and I. We're invited to glorify the Father through the Son. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. Our gracious and loving Father, we come before your throne of grace this morning with hearts, as we just sang, filled with gratitude and reverence for who you are and what you've done. This morning, Lord, we thank you for the precious gift of your word. And as we gather today as your people, we are hungry to receive the nourishment and the wisdom that's found in the scriptures alone. And Lord, we acknowledge this morning that we are in need of spiritual growth, of spiritual transformation. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit is our source who supplies us with not only regeneration, but renewal. We ask that we would be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that both the preaching and the hearing of your word would be blessed by the Spirit of God today. Lord, may we receive it. And we thank you this morning that your word does take deep root. May it do so in our hearts. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the word made flesh. Amen. I have a question as we begin our study of this chapter this morning. And the question is simply this, who is your source. Now that's a question that journalists often are asked. Every news reporter has to answer when an honest person wants to break a story with journalistic integrity. They're asked, well, wait a minute, who is your source? In fact, this is a question that came up often during the pandemic. When medical professionals, remember, on every side of the virus and the vaccine debate, shared their opinions and assertions were made which completely contradicted each other sometimes. And you and I, as the online researcher, were trying to find out, well, what is the truth? And we began to investigate and we really wanted to come up with an opinion and we may have posted those opinions on social media or maybe we brought them up at a, at a dinner with relatives and someone ostensibly asked the question, well, wait a minute, who is your source? Meaning, who is your source of information? What credible witness or source is credentialed and is true? And so we can zoom that question out, who is your source, to beyond the sphere of medicine and beyond just information. And I want to ask that question again this morning. Who is your source? Meaning, who is the source the person that you look to or the thing that you look to to supply you with life, with hope, with all of the support and the one that fulfills your needs. And the answer to this question, who is your source, reveals to many of us what may be an idol. When we think about our supply of hope, our supply of meaning, our supply of help, our supply of satisfaction, let me ask the question, who is your source? J.I. Packer put it simply, you will never need more than God can supply. Now, we've been studying the life of Joseph, the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And last week, we saw Israel and his family leaving Canaan and making a sacrificial pit stop, so to speak, in Beersheba. 
And we saw last week that God there revealed himself once again to Jacob and said, I am the same God who was with you in Bethel and I will be with you, not only when you go down to Egypt, but Jacob, when your offspring, years and years later, come back up from Egypt, I'm still gonna be with you. We saw last week how God promised to be the God who was with his people. And though that return trip uh, to Canaan would not happen for many hundreds and hundreds of years when Moses stands before a new Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, we see this morning in chapter 47, how his family is now in Egypt and now standing before this Pharaoh and how he had prepared his family, Joseph had, for what to say. And now they actually uh, take his advice and say all that he commanded them to say. And so we're going to see how today they receive the best in the land of Egypt. And so what I want us to do as we look at this chapter is in our mind, I want to make a little dividing line and I want to draw a big sharp contrast between the people of God on one end and how God has graciously, greatly, abundantly provided for them. But then what we're also gonna see in the text is a contrast, how the great intensity of the famine, the people of Egypt, unlike Israel's family, have to sell themselves into slavery just to simply eat. What a contrast between these two. In fact, if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to see three important ideas from the text. And the first thing we'll see in verses 1 through 12 is that the people of God are specially blessed. We'll also see that this world is substantially barren in verses 13 through 26. We'll see that uh, all of the land uh, was uh, undergoing this famine. But we'll see in the end that God's provision is significantly better in verses 27 through 31. And the title of the sermon this morning is Abundance in the famine, and that is a paradoxical sentence. Abundance in the famine. But as we dive into the dynamics of the famine and the supply in Egypt, my prayer for us this morning is that you and I as God's people would understand that we live in the midst of a barren world and that we look to the God who sustains and supplies his people with all things good. That we need not look to Egypt for our source, we look to God. And if we look not to God, then we'll find ourselves always looking for something more. But in Christ, we realize we'll never need more than what God can supply. So that's what we're gonna do in our text this morning. Let's begin first by looking at the people of God are specially blessed. And if you notice with me in verse one, Joseph communicates to Pharaoh that his family is now here and all of their possessions are in Goshen. And verse two tells us that Joseph selects five of his brothers to present them to Pharaoh. He had 11 to choose from and he chooses five and we don't need to argue about this or die on this Bible hill. I personally think he would have chosen perhaps his oldest brothers. So he would have had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Maybe he also included Benjamin as a fifth, his younger brother. We're not sure. And, and that's really not as important as how the conversation goes. So verse three tells us that Pharaoh asked them, what is your occupation? And their response is, we are a family of shepherds. Again, following exactly what Joseph had commanded them to say or instructed them to say in chapter 46. But there's also an aspect to their response here that we can't overlook. Notice verse four. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land. There's no pasture for our flocks. The, the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. 
And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Note with me that they are expressing to Pharaoh the temporality of their requests, if that's a word. They are not moving here to Egypt indefinitely. No, they're only coming as sojourners, as pilgrims, as those who are simply passing through. This is not a permanent migration. This is a short visit. You could consider it an extended layover. But not only that, they're also coming, notice with me, humbly. Not only are we sojourners, we are your servants. Please, they're requesting to live in the land of Goshen. And notice Pharaoh's response. Verse 5, he responds to Joseph and says, okay, your brothers, your father have come to you, so settle them in Notice with me, the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So not only is Pharaoh providing for God's people through Joseph, like the best of the land, but he's also inviting them to essentially have work. He's inviting them to have an occupation for generations to come. The land known as Goshen here in verse 6 is also known as the land of Ramses in verse 11. And Derek Kidner in his commentary gives us some insight. He says, quote, this name coupled with the fact that the district was fertile, verse 6, and near to Joseph at court suggests that it was in the eastern part of the Nile Delta near Tanis, the seat of the Hyksos kings of the 17th century and of the uh, Ramsides of the 13th century, the probable period's of Joseph and Moses, respectively, end quote. Remember, Egypt is mostly arid desert, except in and near the Nile River and the Nile River Delta. And the eastern part of the Nile Delta near Atanas would be, on the map here, it would be uh, over to the top right, if you would, where you see, if you can squint and see Tanis. So uh, basically, this is an incredibly fertile incredibly expansive area, lots of land, might need binoculars, and lots of opportunities to grow crops, to sustain livestock, to stay well hydrated, not only to flourish, but now to have employment in the generations to come. Know with me, Pharaoh's not relegating these outsiders to some far off deserted place on the outskirts of Egypt. They're not borderline wilderness. No, they're provided abundantly for. And now that the brothers have stood before Pharaoh, it's now Jacob's turn. Notice verse 7. It says, Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. This is significant. Not only has his brothers now stood before the king, but now Jacob his father is brought in into the presence of the ruler. And notice that he immediately blesses him. But all of this was based on the initiation of Joseph. Apart from Joseph, Jacob has no access to stand before Pharaoh. Does anyone else see a glorious picture of the gospel in verse 7? You see, Jesus brings in the people of God to stand in his presence. And we, in turn, respond by blessing God. We don't barge our way into God's presence and demand an audience with him. We don't presume upon him. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, well, I'm a good person, so I can come before God and he will see my good works and then he will welcome me in 
to his presence. No, the scripture says in Hebrews 13, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, that don't openly profess our worth and our, our work, but that openly profess his name. Jacob can come before Pharaoh and bless him because of the initiation, the invitation of Joseph. And the same is true for you and I. We're invited to glorify the Father through the Son. Well, now we have an interesting exchange between the two. First, Pharaoh asks how old Jacob is. Notice his response in verse 9. This is, by the way, and learned this this morning, this is a very Eastern, a very Oriental uh, way of, of asking someone this question. We in the West, it's a bit of an insult to ask someone on their first. Good to meet you. How old are you? We typically don't do that with women or older folks. Uh, but this is a very Eastern thing to do. It's a respectful thing to do. Jacob said to Pharaoh, the answer to that question is, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they've not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And then verse 10 says, he blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So if you know with me, if you caught it, verse 7 and verse 10, maybe on the way in and on the way out, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. We're not sure exactly what he says to bless him, only that in two occasions he blesses him. But notice the exchange in the middle, the perspective here of Jacob. He sounds like quite the optimist, doesn't he? Uh, he says, yeah, I've lived to 130 years, uh, but every day's been evil. In fact, I'm not even living as long as my dad or my grandpa. I have a short and evil life. <laughs> we might be tempted to read that and think, wow, he should have changed his name, not from Jacob to Israel, but maybe to Eeyore. This guy is he's a Debbie Downer. Um, but I want to encourage us, that's not necessarily Jacob's perspective. Just a chapter later, we'll study this next week. Genesis 48, 15, as he's blessing his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, he says this to them, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. Now that sounds like a man of faith. And that is Jacob's perspective. I don't believe here in front of Pharaoh that he's whining and complaining. I believe he's actually looking at, he's, he's viewing his life through the lens of eternity. And he's saying in light of the glory of God and my namesake as one of the patriarchs, my life pales in comparison to the greater narrative, to the greater glory. But in the end, he could say, yeah, my life was short. It, it was spent quickly in the pursuit of women and, and always trying to outsmart men. But as I enter my final years, I realize there's something greater. And so even though I may have lived short and evil days, God has redeemed all of that evil. And so verse 11 tells us that Joseph, the son, settles his father and his brothers. And then notice that it says that he provides them and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. And as we apply this first idea here, I, I want to give us a practical and not necessarily a spiritual application. And this is for all of us because all of us are children today. And that is this simple application. You and I, we should care for our family when we have the means. You see, we are commanded by God in the scriptures to honor our father and mother. And that command doesn't lighten 
as we go into adulthood. I love that Jesus modeled this from the cross. Jesus from the cross in John chapter 19, one of the seven statements of Christ from Calvary, which by the way, as he had to pull himself up, lift himself up before dying essentially of asphyxiation, Jesus had to, to murmur these words from the cross. And it says in John 19, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Yes, as Jesus was expiring in his crucifixion, he took the time to secure for Mary future provision. It's believed by many that her husband Joseph would have died at this point and that uh, at this point, Jesus's other brothers did not believe in him until after his resurrection. And so Jesus takes the time to present Mary to John as her caretaker. I love what Spurgeon says here. He says, quote, you see him who is verily and truly born of a woman made under the law and under the law you see him still for he honors his mother and cares for her in the last article of death, end quote. You and I have a responsibility as believers. Uh, Paul would tell Timothy, if we care not for our family, we are not able to provide for them. We may have all the doctrine down, but we look like an unconverted heretic. We're worse off than an unbeliever. We're to care for our family. We're to consider how we can care even for our parents in old age. And many of us are coming into that stage where our parents are beginning to age and have a greater need for us now to care for them in the ways that they cared for us. And you see, it's not something that we pass off necessarily to someone else. Are there others that can come and help us and assist us? Yes. We're not to do what my brothers my brother and sister and I joked about when my mom was younger. We joked and said, mom, don't worry. We'll get the best care that someone can pay for so we don't have to worry about you. We love you. you know, we're joking with her. Of course, we'll care for you, mom. Uh, no, we are still to ensure they're not left to themselves or that they die in isolation. We're to care for our family. And that's what Joseph does. He, as this important ruler with his incredibly important task of feeding the nation to keep the nation alive, is there a more important job than this? And yet, even with that incredible task on his plate, he still makes the time and the intentionality and the effort to make sure that his family and his father are provided for. That is helpful and instructive for all of us. May we heed God's word in this area. And so Joseph provides for his family. God's people are graciously provided for. But know with me the contrast now. Know with me the second section and what a stark contrast there is from verse 12 where there's an abundance of food Joseph has provided and now in verse 13, there's no food in all the land. In the second point, we're gonna see how the world is substantially barren. And notice with me that it says not only Egypt but also Canaan. So both of these areas, you could argue the ancient Near East and maybe arguably the known world at this time was suffering the effects of years and years of famine. Now, this is a little bit hard for us in our modern age to grasp what would that have been like to run out of food, to have no resources and have to look around to find provision. You and I rarely have that, but once in a few years, we get a glimpse of it when there is potentially a hurricane coming through. You and I know what it's like when not even a hurricane, because we're usually prepared for those, but just the track seems to aim towards Florida. You know what happens. 
Everyone who's new to Florida immediately runs to Publix and Walmart and wipes out the shelves. You've seen this. There's no toilet paper left because you need, you know, 20 cases of toilet paper for a weekend. Uh, and, and they wipe out the shelves of food. But this was funny. In Texas a few years ago, they had wiped out all of the food except for the vegan section uh, in the supermarket, which I thought was funny. We don't really have that problem necessarily because we have grocery stores. They don't have grocery stores in Egypt, but they do have Joseph's grain. And so in Egypt, this is a desperately, uh, sincerely problematic situation. And the first wave of people come and with money they purchase grain. And that gets them through a year. But at this point, we're most likely, I would argue, we're towards the end, middle end of the seven-year famine. And so notice the second wave. First wave is we're going to buy the grain. Second wave, verse 15. All the money was spent, not only in Egypt, but in Canaan. And so the Egyptians come and they said, give us food. And Joseph answers, okay, give me your livestock. So this is the second wave. No money. What do you have to barter? Well, we have our livestock. And so the horses, the flocks, the herds, the donkeys are given to Pharaoh, to Joseph in exchange for food. But now it's another year. And the famine continues. So wave number three. This is about as desperate a situation as you can imagine. Notice verse 18. When that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. Hey, we have no more money. And the herds belong to you now. We have no, nothing to barter with. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. See, the only thing left to exchange is the land and our lives. They say, verse 19, why should we die, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. Now, Joseph agrees to all this, and all of the landowners here become servants to their god, Pharaoh. Now, they believe that in theory. They already believe that in theory, but now they were forced to endure this in practice. And the only exception here was that the, the land the priests owned were exempt. And that was essentially because they were already given this stipend from Pharaoh to begin with. But everyone else is expected to give a 20% tax of all of their future harvests. They're given seed now. Uh, it's most likely towards the end of the famine. And now they're able to continue to grow new crops. But from here on out, 20% is given back to Pharaoh. And some of us may be tempted to think, well, that's... That's unfair of Joseph, but in verse 25, I just want to point out uh, that the people are not embittered here, but they're thankful. I mean, just think about you and your children. Your children are, are, are hanging on the precipice of death. They need to eat a meal. It's been a, maybe a week since they've eaten, and it's time to eat. And so it's either we give up our land and become servants, or we lose our children. And so no wonder in verse 25, they say, you have saved our lives May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. In that desperate condition, they're willing to even be enslaved to Pharaoh. And so Joseph, verse 26, made it a statute, and it says it stands to this day as it was written that the Pharaoh should have the fifth. So from the people's perspective, this was a life-saving move. They have their land and their lives, and that's all they have to barter with. And so in a time of great crisis, they look to a governmental bailout. But what I want to do for a minute is review this from a different perspective. Yes, the people needed to eat. 
But at what cost? To become slaves of the state? To give over total and complete control of their lives to a regime? David Guzik says, quote, in times of national crisis, the power of central government often increases, end quote. Now, thankfully, we live in the United States and this has never happened to us. <laughs> One government official went on record, and this is something you can Google a few years ago. They said, quote, you never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that is it's an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before, end quote. Whether it's an economic crisis like the Great Depression in the 1930s or a housing crash like the 2007, 8, 9, or a global pandemic or a regional famine. When people find themselves in desperate situations, they are often much more susceptible to putting all of their hope in the government as their functional savior. But there's only one savior, and that's Jesus Christ, the Lord. You see, politicians come and promise much, but church, we know this, at least we yes and amen this, but government is not our ultimate source of all good. The government is definitely by scripture called servants for good. That is scriptural, that is biblical. The government is certainly given limited finite authority by God to wield the sword, yes and amen, that is what God has done. But the state is not to violate the sphere of influence that God has given them any more than God has given a sphere of influence to the church and to fathers in the home. There's a great book that talks about this. It's called Hail the King. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend you pick it up. But as you and I think about this, this desire to turn to alternate sources for our supply other than the Lord, we need to understand as we apply this that alternative sources fall terribly short. Alternative sources fall terribly short. Yes, Joseph's administration does keep the people fed and alive, but it also keeps Pharaoh powerful, wealthy, and potentially oppressive. You see, there's no indication in any way that, I, that uh, Israel's family in any way is lacking, but the people of God are enslaved. And so many times we look to alternative sources to supply us with something good and we find out they fall terribly short. Of course, many of us have looked to government. And many people look to government as the ultimate source. And they worship the state instead of God. And they trust the state is here to provide me with health care, with protection, and to give me sustainable income. Of course, that's going to come at exorbitant taxes. There are many men, maybe even in our church, who look to the idolatrous source of pornography to supply them with satisfaction only to find that they've been drinking from a cistern filled with sand. Many of us may be tempted to look to our future retirement, to our pension, to our stocks, to our investments, to our inheritance as the future source of our stability, the future source of our satisfaction, of our enjoyment one day. That's what's gonna provide for me and my kids. And we inadvertently store up riches that moth and rust destroy where big stock market corrections break in and steal. But friends, when we look to the government as a functional savior or any other alternative source other than the Lord himself, we find these fall terribly short. And so again, who is your source? Who is the supply that you look to?
The world outside of Joseph's provision is substantially barren. But as we look at this third point, we realize that God's provision is significantly better. We've seen the two and we must make a judgment. And out of the two, we see no God's provision is significantly better than anything the world offers. So notice with me in verse 27, what is happening to the people of Israel in the midst of a famine. It says, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. We know how well watered and wonderful that land is. And notice that the rest of the verse says they gained possessions in it. They're not losing, they're gaining. And they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Notice with me that they're not barely maintaining. They're not just existing. No, they're growing. In fact, they're fruitful and multiplying. Where have we seen that before? That's in the garden and post-flood. That's the dominion mandate where God commands Adam to be his vice regent, to carry his name, to be the image bearer of God into all of the world and to take the glory of God and to extend it to all peoples. And we see they're doing that. They're fruitful. They're, they're multiplying. And notice that this is happening in the middle of a hostile and wicked people during a great time of crisis and trouble. All around the people of, of God, there's plight and panic. And among God's people, there's blessing and prosperity. But when it says they were fruitful and multiplied greatly, that's literally their children. Henry Morris calculated with the initial group of five. So Jacob, Leah, Rachel, Bilha, Zilpah. Uh, he estimated they grew into a clan. Of course, we knew from last week uh, they grow in about 50 years or so to 70 to 100. Um, and that's a growth rate, he says, of about 6% per year. And at that rate, by the time their descendants uh, we read about them in the book of Exodus, uh, there would be several million descendants 430 years later. And so they truly were fruitful and multiplied greatly. But verse 28 tells us that Jacob lived 17 years in Egypt and the days, the years of his life were 147 years. Now, he thought his days were up when he faced Pharaoh, but here he has 17 more years of living. And verse 29 tells us that when he sensed that his death was imminent, he invites his son Joseph. Remember from last week, God had, had promised that your own son Joseph's hand will close your eyes in death. And so he invites Joseph and he makes him swear by putting his hand under his thigh. We saw that back with Abraham and his servant previously. And he says, I want you to promise me that you'll bury my remains in Canaan with Abraham and Isaac. And we'll see that more next week as he blesses uh, his grandchildren. But as we consider this chapter, we realize God's provision is significantly better than Egypt's provision for her people. And as we consider our lives in Christ this morning, we can apply it this way, church. We are to seek contentment, not in Egypt, but in Joseph. You see, the source for Jacob was not Egypt, no, it was Joseph. And our world around us promises so much. Come to Egypt and you'll have all that you desire. But we know the world never delivers what it promises us. It is a false advertiser. Keith Green, one of my favorite musicians who's in glory, worshiping at the throne, he wrote a song called Song for Josiah. And this was the same son, it was a son of his, 
the same son who died with him in a tragic plane crash. And these are the words he's saying to his son. He said, this world may promise love and beauty, but it lied to me. And he sings later, this world just might seem so alive, but it's dead to me. Isn't that true? We found this to be true, haven't we? That this world was lying to us, maybe for many, many years. That this world we thought had so much to promise and deliver, and it's dead. It's offered us nothing. It's a false advertiser. I've learned a few years ago that food companies are the biggest liars when it comes to false advertising. You and I have seen the billboards. We've seen the commercials of the Big Mac. And you go, man, I'm on a diet, but that Big Mac, I mean, that looks so amazing. It's layered there. It's like this tall. It's got the sesame seeds and it's got the special sauce. I'm not going to name the whole recipe, but man, I can't wait to stop by on the way home from church and have one of those Big Macs. And then you get it and you open the greasy bag and you pull the box out and you open it and go, wait, where is it? Where's the Big Mac? It's about this tall. It's squished down and you're like, where's its mommy? This is not what I signed up for. It's not what I paid for. But see, food advertisers know this. They know that what they're showing you on the billboard and on the screen is actually something that's been literally made up. It's makeup. In fact, if you don't believe me, you can see those commercials where they have the cereal bowl and the milk on it. That's actually, that's actually glue that's been covered over the frosted flakes. That little boy about to eat that big bowl of ice cream, he's got a smile on his face because he didn't take a bite of it because it's actually mashed potatoes. They have, to, they have to use mashed potatoes instead of ice cream because the hot camera lights essentially melt the ice cream. Mmm, goes great with chocolate syrup all over mashed potatoes. But that's what the world does. The world says, this is what you're getting. And you go, hook, line, and sinker. I'll take a bite of that. And you go, wait a minute. This is not what I signed up for. The world has promised to fulfill the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. This is the good life. This will free you. This will fulfill you. This will fascinate you. And you, you and I know we take the bait and we find out when it's too late. No, this is false. This isn't true. Our Lord would ask us this morning, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Stephen Cole said it this way, quote, the good life in Egypt can never compare to the blessings of the promised land. But we all face the danger of becoming enamored with the goodies of Egypt and forgetting that we are looking for that heavenly city to come. He says, we must remember that our purpose for being here is not to accumulate the things Egypt has to offer. Forgive us, Lord. No, we're here to further God's purpose, to communicate the good news of Christ to every tribe and tongue and nation. The person who by faith lays up treasure in heaven is truly prosperous, as Jesus pointed out. And he has something that the world cannot give or take away, end quote. You see, in this world, we're all looking for someone, for something to supply us, to sustain us, to be our source. And yet the world, church, is empty. So we don't look to Egypt. We look to the true and greater Joseph. We look to Christ and we find that Christ sustains. Christ supplies abundantly more than the world promises. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. He says, quote, Christ is like a river. There are fresh supplies of water coming from the fountainhead continually so that a man may live by it and be supplied with water all his life. So Christ is an ever-flowing fountain. He is continually supplying his people 
and the fountain is not spent. He says, they who live upon Christ may have fresh supplies from him to all eternity. They may have an increase of blessedness that is new and new still and which never will come to an end, end quote. We'll see next week how Joseph fulfills this promise to his father as we study chapter 48 together. And I encourage you this week, especially Saturday, read ahead, meditate on those verses in anticipation of our gatherings again next Sunday. And Lord willing, a little bit of a preview. Some of you have been asking me, what are we doing after Genesis? I'm happy to announce to you, we are going to be studying the gospel of Matthew uh, when we conclude Genesis on Sunday. Uh, we've seen the son of Abraham, uh, the son of Jacob, and we're going to continue and see the son of Abraham in the gospel of Matthew, the one who is the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And we're going to continue our study of the Old Testament now on Wednesday nights, and we're going to jump in in the book of Exodus. So we invite you out on Wednesday nights in just a few weeks, but still come out this week, uh, and we'll be jumping from Philippians to Exodus. But as we close, I have a question for you in conclusion. Have you looked to Christ alone for all things good? Who is your source? The only hope for Israel was to go to the servant who had come up out of the pit, the son who in their mind had resurrected from the dead, the one who alone had the power to be their source, not only for salvation, but also satisfaction. And this morning, have you likewise looked to the Lord Jesus Christ, the true and greater Joseph? Or maybe because of the plight and the difficulty in front of you, you've been tempted to look to lesser things, to things less glorious, to things less capable to a source that indeed is barren, looking for your joy, your hope, and your satisfaction in something other than Christ, which by definition is idolatry. This morning, repent. May Christ crush our idols this morning as we look to the only source of life. We're gonna sing these words in just a moment that remind us that the Lord is our rock. The Lord is our redeemer. And we'll be singing this together. He's the greatest treasure of my longing soul. My God, like you, there is no other. True delight is found in you alone. His grace is a well too deep to fathom. His love, it exceeds the heaven's reach. His truth is a fount of perfect wisdom. And he is the one who is my highest good and my unending need. Amen? Would you stand with me as you're able this morning? We'll give glory to God, our rock and our redeemer. We'll close in song. Father in heaven, thank you that you are the source. We look not to Egypt, which is barren, which is suffering from a plague of famine. There's a famine today of revelation, a famine of the fear of the Lord, a famine of truth. And Lord, we look to your supply for all things that are good. We look to your supply for truth, for wisdom. Lord, we look to you for salvation and satisfaction. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you'd forgive us when we've propped up these fallen, worldly idols that we look to to sustain and to refresh us. And we find ourselves even further and further from your truth. Lord, forgive us. This morning, would you allow these idols to be crushed at your feet? 
that we would look to you alone as the only good source of hope, of meaning, of life. Lord, for some, there may be a need for repentance. For others, just a a reminder this morning, as we learned earlier, that we would remember Jesus Christ and him alone. Father, we love you and we ask that you would strengthen us by the Holy Spirit to look to you alone as our rock and our redeemer. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.